I remember early on as a student reading lectures of Russian culture by Yuri Lotman. And he had that story about a cat who was turned by a witch into a princess. Beautiful, soft beaches, moved elegantly. Everyone was in love with her. But there was just one shortcoming. Whenever this princess spotted a mouse, she couldn't help herself. She just rushed to chase it. And Lotman said that this is Russia's attitude towards liberalism. Rationally, they know it's fine and society ought to be able to do bad things and it's happening everywhere. But subconsciously, they just cannot help but try to control it. Coming to you from the banks of the River Danube, you're listening to the Vienna Coffeehouse Conversations podcast with me, Ivan Feivoda. I'm a permanent fellow at the Institute for Human Sciences here in Vienna, where I lead the Europe's Futures program. So welcome to our digital salon. In each of the Vienna Coffeehouse Conversations episodes, I'll be joined by Europe's Futures Fellows and leading thinkers from around the world. We'll be probing their current research through discussion, challenge, and exploration. Listen along as we explore the ideas, debates, and encounters that shape the future of democracy and of Europe. I'm honored today to host uh, Kadri Leek, who is one of this year's eight Europe's Futures Fellows. Kadri is a senior foreign policy fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations, ECFR, with a research focus on Russia, Eastern Europe and the Baltic region. She joined ECFR in 2012 after her term as director of the International Center for Defense Studies in Estonia, where she led this organization from 2006 to 2011, and also worked as senior researcher and director of the by now quite famous Lennart Mary conference that's held in Tallinn every year. Throughout the 1990s, she worked as a Moscow correspondent for several Estonian daily newspapers, as well as for the Baltic News Services. In 2002, she became the foreign news editor at Postimes, the daily in Tallinn. And in 2004, she left to become editor-in-chief at the monthly foreign affairs magazine Diplomatia. She was also the host of a number of current affairs talk shows in radio in Tallinn. So a very warm welcome uh, to you, Kadri, uh, to this podcast. Thank you, Ivan. It's my pleasure. So your research focus during your fellowship, you entitled Russia's Capacity for Self-Correction. Where did it come from and where did it go? So generally, our topic will be Russia, given the wholly changed geopolitical situation after February of last year, when the full-scale invasion by the nuclear power Russia on a sovereign European country called Ukraine began. We are uh, in the 20th month since the beginning of that war that started out in Russian uh, rhetoric as a quote-unquote special military operation that was to last only a few days or a few weeks. We know how that attempt at a wholesale subjugation of Ukraine continued and is unfolding. 
And more and more, this is seen in Russian eyes in particular as a forever war with the West. How do you see the current situation in Russia, both societally and in state terms, vis-a-vis what is going on with this invasion? It is sometimes still hard for me to internalize what actually has happened, because when I started working on Russia, when I first became interested in Russia, and that was in perestroika time, then there was deep conviction that Russia needs to learn from its past. Yet now it has gone back to a place where it ended never to go back again, both in terms of domestic democracy as as well as as foreign policy. And it's all, of course, in retrospect, logical to see how uh, domestic dynamic, negative selection, institutionalization, lacks of checks and balances in the society ultimately allowed foreign policy choices to be made by a single person who either badly miscalculated or really had become totally rational, prioritizing control over Ukraine, over Russia's all other interests. But it is, yes, it is a bad place. And it is quite hard to see how Russia can get out of of that situation, regardless even of of how the war turns out. So I I am worried about Russia's future and, of course, by implication, Europe's future as well, because... Whichever way you look, uh, Russia is a big chunk of Europe or next to Europe. You know, you don't need to debate that question, but it's here. So can I ask you, given that after the fall of the Berlin Wall, there were, as we now see, illusionary and somewhat naive expectations that Russia would slowly move towards, let's call it colloquially a normal relation with the rest of the world and with Europe, particularly the developing economic ties with major European countries and, of course, the energy interdependence uh, of uh, Europe on Russian gas with the concomitant modernization, as it was called, of Russia through technology exports from the West. All of that seemed to be moving maybe at a slower pace in the last decade, but that nothing dramatically would change. Uh, And of course, then, you know, there was the Munich speech of Vladimir Putin back in February 2007. There was the invasion of Georgia in 2008, the annexation of Crimea in 2014. There's a lot of speculation about the COVID years and Putin's isolation. And of course, his infamous theoretical, quote unquote, text about Russian history back from July 2021. How much do you think that impinged, or was he already on a collision course even before the COVID years? I think it has been a gradual evolution. When Putin came to power at the turn of the century, then he actually wanted to be friends with the West. I think it was sincere, but I think it was always, he saw it, in his own way, as a transactional relationship. He gives something to the West, and he expected the West to give something in return. 
He offered America bases in Central Asia. He probably expected U.S. to reciprocate in a number of ways in the foreign policy field as well. And Putin also, the way he managed Russia domestically, I mean, he always wanted to have control over society and its choices. Sometimes I wonder, sometimes maybe he he has that tendency to underestimate the impact of society on what is happening and overestimate the impact of special, special services. So potentially he even sincerely thought that Russian society thinks like he does and people who don't, they are brought up by, by hostile forces. That started early on. And tragedy for him, of course, was that uh, the rest was not prepared for transactional relationships in order to actually have an equal say on the global system shaped by the West at the time, Russia should have been a more perfect democracy. That would have qualified it to have a say in the framework of liberal world order that privileged democracy as a system and democratic countries. So where the antagonism started, I think it, it is rooted in, in Russia never becoming proper democracy. And that, of course, started frustrating them because there were many countries and people who relentlessly criticized Russia from early on, not least the Baltic states. I think the downward spiral somehow started from there. However, that did not yet at all mean that Russia was set on restoring Soviet Union or empire or attacking neighboring countries, really. I I remember very well my friend, an Estonian journalist with whom we were working in Moscow at the same time. He went back in 2005 for Russia-EU summit. And 2005 was the time where, uh, when Russia-Baltic relations were somehow very much in the spotlight. Latvia had just ratified border treaty. Russia had withdrawn its signature from the border treaty with Estonia because they didn't like the ratification law in the Estonian parliament. So there was a huge mess with these things. And, and it was all linked to the past, whether occupation was occupation or did the Baltic states join Soviet Union voluntarily. All these things came to surface once again. And my friend was press conference with Putin and uh, Jean-Claude Juncker. And my friend asked Putin that, you know, why can't you just apologize? Look how Germany has dealt with the past. You could just say that what Russia did in 1940 was wrong and we could live peacefully ever after. And as a response, I mean, Putin reluctantly said, well, Soviet Union apologized. Congress of People's Deputies condemned Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. What else do you want? And then he launched the raid on history, how Baltic states were handed from Germany to Russia and then Russia handed them back to the West. But the moral of it was that these things should be left at peace. And he said, you know, we have lost a lot as well. Uh, Crimea, for instance, belongs to Ukraine now. And we what? Should take back Crimea? He talked about it as totally outrageous thing, ridiculous example. I think there are more quotes like that. I just remember this one because it was my friend. But I think he was sincere. I, I think, you know, back at that time, 2005, 
territorial expansion like we have seen happening was was unthinkable. Not on his mind. Exactly. So, so where was evolution? I also hear Russian colleagues telling that in 2004, after Orange Revolution, there was discussion in Moscow, where should they evacuate the Black Sea Fleet in case Ukraine, after Orange Revolution, chooses to expel it. But there was no such discussion in 2013-2014. Then the decision was made that they, they need to take Crimea. So there was gradual evolution uh, towards ever ever tougher and more illegal means. And I do assume that COVID isolation might have played a part. We know for certain that Putin has been reading a lot of history and archive documents. The Russian National Archive was actually subordinated to presidential administration in 2016 already. And that was, I guess, because of his personal interest. He has been making lots of use of it. And of course, given his position alone there in the Kremlin or in Sochi, 20 years in, in power and then COVID, he was inevitably isolated. I guess that he just stopped getting adequate feedback from reality. That might have been problematic already earlier, but that, that exaggerated. And of course, he never managed to understand Ukraine for, for what it is. The rest of Russian leadership, I guess, understood it better, at least some of them. I did a round of interviews in Moscow in March 2018, talked to people from government offices, and a number of them, without me even provoking it, said that our understanding of Ukraine didn't correspond to reality. They had internalized that. And I thought, well, thank God, finally understand. And later we saw that Putin decided to double down on his version of Ukraine. And surprised many of those who worked with him. Indeed. Uh, at that time. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll like to come back to this idea of, of control, of, of power and if I can share an impression that I had from my only two visits to Moscow in the 2000s, which was led by by our friend and colleague Ivan Krastev, and only being in Moscow, a, a vibrant modern city with a very European feel with people with their iPhones and iPads and cafes, etc. You were feeling a, a kind of momentum of modernization, at least at that very urban central level, and you saw a society that was capable of moving forward. And yet in the meetings with the officials, and we had very high-level meetings, we didn't meet Putin, uh, we met Lavrov and others, the feeling that I took away was that there was a kind of binary choice here. Allow the opening of the society and it moves forward, but at the same time, a personal feeling that I had a fear of what opening means basically boils down to losing control and losing power, i.e. not being able to actually continue the type of authoritarian, I would now add totalitarian rule. And what we've seen was, and unfortunately in the most dramatic ways, the closing down of society, the closure of the NGO memorial, assassinations of politicians, most notably Nemtsov or uh, Navalny in jail or killing of journalists. And I would throw into that, of course, what happened in Belarus, the failed victory of the opposition in terms of 
Lukashenko's regime with the help of Putin taking full control. We are in that mode now, aren't we, Kadri? Fully, I mean, even more total control than there was, say, 10 years ago. I guess so. Certainly for the remainder of the Putin period, which can still last a number of of years. It's interesting the way you describe your impressions from Moscow. That is something that is quite characteristic historically to Russia. I remember early on as a student reading lectures of Russian culture by Yuri Lotman, and there was a hilarious story there. The famous linguist. Indeed, yes. and famous also in, in Russia. He was actually a Jew from Russia who chose to work in Tartu University because in Soviet times, Tartu was more per- permissive environment for people with Jewish background than St. Petersburg, what Leningrad at the time. And he had that story in one of his lectures about a cat who was turned by a witch into a princess. And it was most graceful princess, beautiful, soft features, moved elegantly. Everyone was in love with her. But there was just one shortcoming. Whenever this princess spotted a mouse, she couldn't help herself. She just rushed to chase it. And Lotman said that this is Russia's attitude towards liberalism. Rationally, they know it's fine and society ought to be able to do their thing and it's happening everywhere. But subconsciously, they just cannot help but try to control it. And that sort of surfaces all that. Wonderful story. (laughs) Indeed. In theory, you could also learn to live with it. Russia really has had these moments when political system breaks down, it's free for all, and it results in ugly things. Russians themselves often recall Smuta, time of troubles. Or, you know, 1917 was bad enough with long aftermath. But I think we ought to be able to somehow build some societal insurance against it. I mean, you know, Germans have a collective decision not to allow parties further right than CDU, because they have seen what what happens from that. And they have managed it without ceasing being proper democracy. So Russia could actually also have some built-in mechanisms against societal anarchy that still preserve it as democracy. But that has not happened. And now, yes, I think for the Putin time, I, I think it only can get worse. How much worse remains to be seen, but certainly not better. So as you say, we could see a protracted period of of Putin's rule. Of course, there are elections next year. There's the whole issue of elections now being held also in the occupied territories of of Ukraine, which is about 17% of Ukraine's territory is now under Russian rule. But coming to the subject of your research this year, this capacity for self-correction, you yourself mentioned a few of those episodes in Russian history. Of course, there was the period of Khrushchev under Stalin, which was also within a communist system, a period of self-correction. And obviously, the greatest self-correction was Gorbachev and Perestroika and Glasnost when there was a realization that the system that existed under under Brezhnev and his followers could not continue, that Russia simply could not survive, and, and the opening up 
So given what you are looking at and given your deep experience and knowledge of, of Soviet society, having grown up in, in the last years of it and having lived this opening of perestroika, how, what is your expectation? I mean, there's, there's a lot of talk, you know, after Putin, you could get a worse version of Putin. Obviously, it's anyone's guess what happens after Putin. But how do you look at this possibility of self-correction? At one point, I noticed that my predictions about Russia tend to be wrong because they are based on my experience in the Soviet Union where I grew up. And Soviet Union, when I grew up, was, was democratizing, actually, liberalizing. Ever more things were possible and good things. And now I noticed that at certain junctions, I expect something to happen that doesn't happen. Say, for instance, in 2011, when there were anti-Putin protests, I expected a bigger political upheaval. I expected more new players to enter political field, similarly to the addition of political players in, in Berestroika years. You know, suddenly there were all these people. We didn't know of them yesterday, but suddenly they were big names. And that didn't happen. So I I wanted to have a closer look at what shaped Soviet society and its capacity for self-correction back then and what shapes Russian society now. I'm afraid that part of the answer is that back then we had Soviet Union and now we have Russia. I remember interviewing the late Yuri Levada, uh, the grand old man of Russian sociology. Big public opinion polls over the years. Indeed. The whole sociology as a discipline, in a way, was introduced by, by him in Russia. And actually, they worked a lot also in Estonia at the holiday base of Tartu University. That was their retreat base. So they have a prominent links between Moscow and Tartu. So I went to interview him about the role of the Baltic states in the Soviet Union. That was also around 2000 or so. And his opening sentence to my question was, I am very sad that the Baltic states have left because some societal processes that with their presence work normally now don't work at all or work very slowly. So according to him, the Baltic states served as certain catalysts of political processes. And I think in a way it was easier for Russia to function as the core of this multinational country. And they actually, to their credit, one needs to say, they, they used other peoples well. I mean, it wasn't mononational elite imposing themselves on republics. There was a bit of that too here and there, but they were actually happy to love people from the Baltic states or Georgia look at the pop singers, TV personalities, movie personalities who come from Caucasus or Baltic states, less from Central Asia, but, but some even from there. So it really was multinational in one sense. And I guess that actually also helped for self-correction of society. That said, I don't know. I think, I mean, I have also seen a younger generation grew up in, in Russia I wrote a paper even about the young generation in Russian foreign policy, which I think was one of the most interesting works I've done for ECFR, uh, involving many in-depth interviews with young diplomats, foreign policy analysts, journalists, and they were amazingly thoughtful. I was actually impressed 
they had already grown up in an environment where you know personal choices are much harder than than in the west because environment was more repressive and more complicating in all kinds of ways there was certain maturity in them that i didn't always detect in in the west and they worked a lot on the fields so i was quite impressive and i up until february 24 I saw a potential for Russia to have an evolutionary way out of Putin's dead end. The new political class brought along by new leaders that introduces maybe not a perfect democracy, but still a system that would be more meritocratic probably and more accountable than Putin's system. Because Accountability is gone. Even Soviet Union, that I remember, was more accountable and more law-abiding in some ways. In the Soviet Union, you couldn't arrest someone for standing in front of a Kremlin with a blank sheet of paper. Back then, it was a joke. They arrest you for a blank sheet of paper. Now it's reality. So I don't know what will happen. I think a lot depends really on when, when and how Putin leaves. And where Russia is by that point, in terms of its war in Ukraine, domestic narratives, official and unofficial, and so forth. But I don't think that it will be inevitably worse than Putin. I mean, there are certainly characters there who are worse than Putin, but there are also those who would wish nothing more than to get back to a more reasonable ground and if history is any guide then you know after stalinism things didn't change for perfect but they changed for better and can you say anything about the young people whom you interviewed for the article that you wrote did most of them stay did some of them leave retreat some have left some have stayed of those who stayed some have become kind of internal exile or internal, at least, opposition mentally, <clears throat> while keeping probably their jobs in the same institutions they worked for. Others, the more opportunistically minded, are happy cheerleaders for the war effort. So yeah, that, that probably should tell me that my selection was adequate. It reflects all angles of, of society. As the, the 20th month of the Russian full-scale invasion unfolds, and again, Van Krastev wrote an op-ed in the Financial Times recently saying that a lot is now predicated, and I'd like you to comment on that, on waiting for not Godot, but waiting for the election in the U.S. in exactly a year's time. Putin might be coming, counting on, on Trump coming back and changing the the scene, the geopolitical scene, or not, others as well. The chief of staff of the Ukrainian armed forces, Zaluzhny, talked about a counteroffensive that was not advancing. President Zelensky said, of course, that they will continue and have plans for military offensives in 2024. It is a war of attrition, no doubt, and the front lines are more or less where they are with either side trying to make breakthroughs in it. 
how much do you think is Putin's policy and outlook predicated on this expectation of a Trump victory, which, of course, is anyone's guess what will happen in a year's time in the U.S.? I think that is certainly correct that Russia is waiting for that election and it has its expectations. But this is not to say that if Biden wins, then Russia decides that, okay, now we have failed. Now we need to change course. (laughs) Of course. Then they will just find new things to wait for. Someone said, might again have been Ivan Kristev, that in a way Biden's win would be seen similarly to Boris Yeltsin's victory in 1996. Everyone would be saying that, yes, well, that's for now, but what next? So it's another four years and and then unknown. I think Putin overall is betting on decline of the West. I think he has convinced itself that the West has overstretched itself, has become too ideological. Ideology is a bad word now for Russia. And if you listen to Putin's speeches, I mean, he actually condemns Bolsheviks for being too ideological. And and he thinks that, and actually many in Russia think that Russia lost out as a great power because, not just because Bolsheviks and civil war cost Russia some territories compared to Tsarist Russia, which they only took back in 1940s, uh, but also because in their later the Brezhnev era approach to foreign policy, the Russia was after purity of ideology and it shunned many prospective allies because these were not ideologically pure enough and they had complaints about it. So the view in Moscow, at least when I was last there two years ago for rounds of interviews, the view was that the West has committed the same mistake it has become overly normative. It only talks to democracies. It privileges democracy in the way that has become destructive for the West itself. And I think for Putin, decline of the West is now a necessary condition for emerging from Ukraine war with Russia's status as a big power still more or less intact. Because otherwise, even if Russia suppose won the war, which I don't expect to happen, or what is victory anyway, in, in that kind of war. But even if even if they succeeded on that, they would still end up pariahs in Western eyes, sanctioned by the West. And that would actually be affecting their economy and development and thinking for, for many years to come. So... To actually be victorious, I think Russia needs decline of the West. I mean, earlier I used to make the argument that not everything Russia does is directed against the West. You know, we might think so, but on many of these cases, Russia was actually minding its own business, building up its own leverage in in the world to be used as and when needed. It wasn't necessarily everything focused on on the West. Actually, Russian foreign policy was trying to make the West and its relationship with the West less of a focal point for for Russian foreign policy. They they were trying to become, yeah, multipolar, 
in, in their approach to the world with, with some success. But this war has actually brought back that antagonism with the West, which is now quite existential. I think for Putin to succeed, he needs the West to fail. And for now, he has convinced himself that this will happen, that the West has planted the seeds of its downfall itself, and this will become to fruition. So I think, you know, Biden win will be seen as sort of small delay in, in that process. But I think what really could change the calculation would be if the West manages to adapt to the new era, to the passing of the unipolar moment, and learn to interact with a world that is actually not necessarily moving to democracy, at least not in the way we all hoped in the 1990s. If we learn to effectively operate in that world without you know, losing our own democracy and values and things, I think that actually would in the end be viewed as game change also by Moscow. But that is, of course, something that cannot be done overnight. So we are inevitably talking about years, if not decades here. Well, continuing on that subject, Russia is clearly acting as a spoiler in many parts of the world or trying to assert its position. I mean, no need to mention Syria, for example, where it stepped into a void that was left by Western actors or other places like that. In the Balkans, where I come from, their media and social media tactics are clearly visible. Of course, they're buying journalists and others. But we see that also in Germany, even before the invasion of Ukraine or France. Uh, President Macron, I think, after his first election, talked about the influence of Russian television, RT and others. Do you see that as Putin's attempt to try and push towards the decline of the Western world, or is it simply to show to others in his worldview that the European Union, for example, together with the US, is unable to consolidate democracy even in the parts of the world where it is majoritarian? Good question. I think it has been motivated by different calculations. I think some of it actually doesn't even come from Putin necessarily, but from the so-called political entrepreneurs. And there are many such in Russia who sense that disorder in the West is to Kremlin's liking. And they try to make mischief and then they turn up in the Kremlin expecting rewards. Are we talking about the secret services in all their guises? Well, also guys like, for instance, Konstantin Malofeyev, who is said to be behind some of the mess in the Balkans, or even Wagner, I think, has, has had mm -hmm. moments like that. Then again, of course, certain deeds probably have been sanctioned in some way by the Kremlin. For instance, I expect the interference in US election in 2016. I think that must have received at least a note from Putin. But I took that as a message. You know, I, I think Putin expected Hillary Clinton to win the election uh, because they, they have firm belief in U.S. deep state and its capacity to control political processes. And interference and leaking of emails was Putin's message to Hillary Clinton saying that, watch out, we can harm you too. And they were actually pretty confused and sad when things blew up the way they did and 
you know, the situation was they had U.S. president whom they liked, who liked them, but who couldn't deliver anything because his his hands were bound by by the fact of Russian interference. So to me, it's still an interesting but open question how much more we will see it. Because on one level, of course, Russia has all the motivation to keep doing such things, also in order to wreck Western societies, to so doubt about the wisdom of uh, Western support to Ukraine, so forth. So that probably suggests we will be seeing more of it. On the other hand, I guess that after precautions mutiny this past summer, the Kremlin might have been rethinking this political entrepreneurs and and freedom of action, yes, they should have. I also wonder how permissive environment Europe is for for Putin now. I mean, in some countries, everything to do with Russia is toxic. It is not as easy to operate in Europe as it was back then. I think many countries are much more cautious. They watch out on all levels. I mean, special services watch out for... Russian actions, media that doesn't quote uncritically Russian sources. So it's not as easy as it was. Though it depends, of course, a lot on the country. Things are very uneven. And indeed, for example, President Macron is is a prime example of someone who tried sitting at that huge white table in the Kremlin to dissuade Putin from from going to war, but basically took a, a blow on the chin and decided that that's where the danger was coming from and has espoused, rightly so, the enlargement of the European Union towards the east. And uh, Ukraine and Moldova will, I'm sure, get a date to begin accession talks, even though we know that is a process that will take time. But as we slowly come towards the end, I'd like to ask you about China and Russia. Clearly, both countries espouse a view that the world that has been dominated by an international liberal uh, rules-based order is not something that, again, very simply, does not accommodate their view of the world and their way in which they see the world should be run. Belt and Road in China's way, Russia, of course, a much weaker player there. How is this relationship from what you know and your contacts seen in Russia? I, I will I will quote someone without mentioning them after the beginning of invasion, a prominent Russian think tanker in a closed Zoom session said that probably after a number of years of this kind of situation and necessarily reliant on China in some ways, Russia will understand how European it is. Yes. Well, that has been my view as well, that Europe shouldn't resist Russia's rapprochement with China. The more they are, get exposed to China, the, the, the more they start liking the West. Exactly, because that is quite some contrast. And if they think that the West dictates them terms, then wait until China actually does start dictating terms in Chinese way. That is a lot tougher. But I think that day is, of course, a long way off. As I see it, there are multiple factors that influence Russian-Chinese relationship. There is also deep national interest. In that over 4,000 kilometers common border, it's the longest land border in, in the world. And it is absolutely 
in Russia's, but probably also China's interest to prevent that product from becoming securitized. So there are strong incentives to keep the relationship reasonably harmonious. Russia has been hedging, not hedging against China, but there are spheres in in Russia where China is not welcome. When I was researching Russia-China relationship, I was told about um, brain center of, of Moscow's face recognition system. Moscow has that very effective face recognition system by now. Its brain center is somewhere in southern Moscow, a couple of apartment buildings that are full of Russian technology to the extent possible, otherwise U.S. technology. China is allowed to supply power banks or some very low-key equipment. And that's because for all the rhetoric, Moscow knows that American companies' uh, relationship with Pentagon is nowhere near as close as Chinese companies' relationship with uh, special services in, in Beijing. Now, however, American equipment being unavailable, Russia probably is forced to resort more on Chinese technology. Trade relations with China are, are, are going to boom. So certain dependency on China now inevitably is strengthened because West is the way it is. But Russia, of course, for them, I think, urgent Trump's important or strategic for the foreseeable time. Right now, the struggle with the West is is so existential, but any other dependencies it might be creating while fighting the West takes secondary place and are to be dealt with later on. So we just hope that later on, when that eventually comes, Russia will still have capacity to make its own decisions and and to change course. Because, yes, I, I think... It will conclude exactly as I, as as you say that West is not so bad after all. Well, thank you very much, Kadri. And as the Russian full-scale invasion continues, as the world security architecture has been turned upside down, obviously what is happening in the Middle East uh, with Israel and Gaza is another addition to the wholesale crisis that we are going through. Russia, as you said at the beginning, is not going to move. It will be on the eastern border of the Western democracies. And in one way or another, it will have to be dealt with even when uh, this war ends. And one day it will end, hopefully with with a Ukrainian victory or at least uh, not with a, a Russian victory. So with this thought that Russians will realize that they are more European then they are Asian. We'll see how all that unfolds. I'd like to thank you very much for this deep insight that you have given us and hope to see you soon. Thank you. Thank you. That concludes this episode of Vienna Coffeehouse Conversations, the podcast brought to you by the Europe's Futures Programme at the Institute for Human Sciences in Vienna. Europe's Futures is a programme of impact, ideas and action for a Europe that rises to the challenges of the 21st century and is undertaken in collaboration with the Esther Foundation. To find out more about our work and research, visit europesfutures.eu.